Welcome to episode number 16 of the WIM podcast. That's WWIM podcast, Women Who Inspire Me. Our guest today is the multi-talented, smart, beautiful, entertaining, just um, entertainment icon of Massachusetts, I would say. Joyce Colhaywick, thank you so much for being our guest. Dave, you are a doll for asking me. I love the subtitle of your podcast, Women Who Inspire Me. And you're a man. That's excellent. (laughs) I've been blessed. I've been blessed with starting from my grandmother, my mother, my sister's cousin, like surrounded by awesome women and uh and knowing you, I mean, you're you're an inspiration to so many people, Joyce. Thank you. Thank yes. you. I mean, if any of my sort of uh, difficult experiences have been inspiring, that's the gift of those experiences right. Right. to be able to talk and help. Yes. So what made Joyce Colhaywick Joyce Colhaywick? <laughs> my mother, my father, yes. my... Honestly, it's, you know, it's a very interesting story, but... Um, You know, I grew up in sort of a tough working class, lower middle class family. My family uh, were from Poland and Italy. My grandparents all came from there. So my parents were both first generation and they had a very strong work ethic. We had very close family ties. We liked all different kinds of food. Everybody was always busy. It it was a very vibrant, emotional milieu, if you will. And I, uh, so I worked always. I mean, like from the time I was little, I was actually, well, let me back up a little bit. I, I was a very curious kid and I was always a deep thinker and, you know, wondering about things, but I I loved the arts. I loved to sing. I loved to dance. I loved music. What can you play? You can play an instrument. I play the piano. I was my parish church organist and soloist from the time I was 11 years old until I was 17. Wow. I would sing these like high requiem masses in the dark from the balcony, you know, with a mic slung over the organ. Um, I did weddings and funerals and and I I loved it. I I loved it. I thought I was actually going to be a nun for till I was 16. And then I got elected president of my junior class in high school and it fit like a glove. And I said, hey, wait a minute. I need to be out in the world. Right. So I decided that. But I love the I love the nuns and how orderly they were, the spiritual dimension, how kind, how living in community with a purpose. You know, all of that was important to me. So all of this is all part of, uh, you know, the things that interested me were part of my background. Uh, I majored in English and literature and minored in teaching and music. Actually, I double majored. And then I got a master's in English and teaching. And so I didn't know what to do all the, with all this stuff that I was interested in. You know, I mean, I it didn't even occur to me until I was a senior in college, Simmons. I went to Simmons, now Simmons University. And I also co-host their women's leadership conference every year for like the last, you know, 12, 13 years. Um, And now it's now it's a university. Um, I didn't know what to do with, you know, my interest in the arts and dancing and music and theater and uh, expression. I was a 
uh, I was always a speaker. I could always talk. I like to talk in case you couldn't tell. <laughs> and I it was somewhere halfway through my um, senior year in college, I realized, oh, wait, wait a minute, I'm going to actually have to get a job. And I, I didn't know what the job was that would involve all this. So I thought, oh, I could teach. It was never my vocation. Mm. And I know that you are a teacher. And honestly, what? it is a real vocation, Dave. It's a real calling. Can I tell um, you now that teaching isn't my number one choice? <laughs> I'm actually, I'm a writer. Oh, okay. I, I write and I also perform stand-up comedy. Um, so screenwriter, screenwriter is my dream job, but teaching is a good job to have while I pursue that. If If you can, if you can bear it, and I would have to say, and I mean that in the nicest way, I found it, well, I didn't want to teach, but I decided to sort of float around and try a whole bunch of interesting, well, no, I actually went on to grad school right away. And I, and so I kept going to school. That was the idea. I got my master's and then I came out and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I just, but I didn't want to do anything really serious. I knew that this was a free, free time in my life and I could check out all different kinds of things. So I, I, I just, you know, walked around and I did, um, oh, I would walk into ad agencies and say, oh, do you need somebody or do you have any suggestions or, you know, and I met a lot of women who passed me from one person to another, to another, to another. And finally, I ended up making a, um, getting a job in a company called Mass Casting Corporation that made TV and radio commercials. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. But I didn't get to do any of that. I sat at the front desk. I was the receptionist. I made coffee. I answered the phone until one day two guys walked in and they said, hey, do you want to be in a commercial, a TV commercial? I said, sure. And they said, well, we can't pay you. And I said, oh, well, OK, that's no problem. But we can give you a video portfolio. I didn't even know what that was. But I ended up making a commercial for the Plainfield, Connecticut dog racing track. And uh, I had to pretend <laughs> to be on a date and we were betting on the dogs and there was makeup and hair and cameras. And I thought, oh, this is so much fun. Um, and then they gave me the video portfolio, which was like a videotape the size of like a small suitcase. You right. know, I mean, how big right. were at the time. And uh, I didn't have any equipment on which to play it. So I used to take it into department stores and try to plug it into the equipment that I found there. It was hysterical. And then I just put it away. And then I got a phone call from Brook Brookline High School, where I had done my student teaching uh, while I was a student at, at Simmons. And they said, we have a, a, a teacher who's leaving halfway through the year maternity leave. Would you please come and fill in? And I think I said no, like three times. And they finally said, please, Joyce, come in. And I did. They hired me. I taught for two and a half years and it just wasn't for me. I can't, I didn't did, did like, you like dread going into work or I did. Oh, I wow. didn't like anything about it <laughs> and I didn't like the hours. I am not a morning person. I didn't like all the paperwork. I didn't like the AWOLs. I didn't like the discipline issues. I was like 22. The kids yeah. were like 17. Yeah. I taught close. It was tough. I didn't know who I was for them. I, I didn't think I was old enough to do it. I didn't have any experience. I this was a very demanding, uh, you know, high energy. Low paying. High school. Low, <laughs> that didn't even occur to me, honestly. 
it wasn't the money. I thought I was rich. I was making $8,000 a year. I thought that was fabulous. I, you know, it never occurred to me. It was that I didn't love it. And I could see, I could see the teachers around me who did love it. Mm. And I knew I would never be, be one there. of them. Yeah. I knew that it wasn't in me. Uh, and, and it was emotionally so difficult. I had 165 kids a week to teach and keep track of. And I was a tiny part of their day. And these kids, teenagers would come in with all kinds of stuff, yeah. you know? I mean, it was overwhelming to this 22 year old. And, uh, you know, the first three weeks, I think I got asked out to the junior prom. I mean, it was like, I looked like one of the kids. It was really- I'm not surprised. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it was a tough, tough run. Anyway, I finally, Everybody said, oh, it'll get better. It'll get better. You know, everybody feels like this. And my mother was the only one who said to me, Joyce, if you don't like it, quit. And I thought that's what I wanted to hear because that's what I wanted to do. So, and wow. I, so there was oh, no like offer from WBZ or whatever. You just. Oh, no. Television. Wow. That wasn't even a. Yeah. That wasn't anywhere so had, on the horizon. Yeah. That so wasn't what's in the, my so goal. So, so the leap, he, the leap yeah. was that summer, I decided to just start exploring. And I had three, three different cues that sent me to this job. Uh, one was I flipped on the TV one day and saw a show called Evening Magazine that was on. And it looked so friendly and lovely. And I said, oh, that looks, that looks easy. That's like something I could do. <laughs> but of course, that's just a fleeting thought. Right. Then the next thing I did was make an appointment with the head of the communications department at Simmons. Now, I had never been in the communications department and I was in English lit. I wrote, you know, analysis of poetry and, you know, I was I was a, a thinker and uh, communications. I could communicate I, that that didn't seem to me even to be a legitimate my major. I won't um, tell my younger sister that <laughs> I tell people now, don't major communications. If you're going to do that, you're going to double major. Yeah. Communications and lit, communications and poli-sci, right. communications and math, science, because you need something to communicate. Right, right. <laughs> One needs well, to be an educated person and have a filter through which to view the world. And then, then you have something to talk about, a framework to put around whatever it is you're communicating. So, so I met with the head of the department and at the end of two hours, he said, you know, I said, do you think I could ever have a job in television? He said, I don't know. Let me see your teeth. It was hysterical. And I said, <laughs> so he said, all right, look, uh, here's the name of somebody uh, who is graduated from here last year in the communications department. And now she's the producer of a show called Evening Magazine, Melanie Chillick. And I said, oh, I just happened to flip that on the other day. I saw that show. He said, you should call her. But I didn't. Of and then, yeah, then three weeks went by and um, my I was getting married. My future mother-in-law uh, runs a stationery store. Trust me, Dave, this leads somewhere. She was preparing <laughs> wedding invitations for us, my me and my yeah. husband, my now still husband of almost 45 years. Prepared wedding invitations also for a woman named Nancy Glass. Nancy Glass, who was leaving her job as an on-air contributor on a show called Evening Magazine. Magazine. And they couldn't find a replacement. And they had auditioned 40 people. 
And my mother-in-law says to me, Joyce, I heard Nancy says, blah, 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 you should go down and audition. And I'm thinking, well, that's the third time I've heard that name. I'm thinking, the universe is telling you. Get this. I call them up. I tell them, hi, I'm a teacher out of work. Da, 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 da. And the first thing they ask me is, do you have a video portfolio? Yes, I do. <laughs> I said, well, of course. Uh, of course I have a video portfolio. And I hadn't ever seen this thing. And I, I had tucked it away in a drawer two and a half years earlier. And they said, well, come down to the station and bring us this portfolio. So I did. I got all dressed up. I ran in the front door of WBZ TV. I got up to the security window. A flap opens up. A hand reach out, takes it. And I thought, well, I'll never right. be seen or heard from again. My mother said, Joyce, call them if you haven't heard. I called them. They said, yeah, we looked at your tape. We couldn't tell much from it. I'm thinking, no surprise there. <laughs> uh, we need you to audition. Be at the Swan Boats this Thursday at 4.20 in the afternoon. Don't wear black. Don't wear white. 420? That's an odd time for a first meeting. I wasn't the only one <laughs> auditioning. They okay. had us oh, all slotted you, in. That makes more sense. Yeah. Prepare an instant weekend. So I had to watch the show to see what that was. I prepared it like a doctoral dissertation. It was on index cards, the whole bit. I go down there and I see 10 other women who are tall and blonde and voluptuous. And I'm like, oh, they're not looking for you, but maybe, you know, you're smart. You'll get a job behind the scenes, blah, blah, blah. Um, I noticed the first woman who walked up there was wearing all white. And I thought, you know, <laughs> they only gave us three directions. <laughs> <laughs> don't wear black, don't wear white. And I'm thinking this could be easier than I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I also noticed she didn't know what to do with her hands. And I get up there and uh, I decided to put my hands in my pockets. Are you, one, I, you, are you one that talks with your hands? All the time. And, <laughs> time. and you know, I'm half Italian yeah. and uh, the the Poles are pretty expressive. Is, is Kulhavik Italian or is that Polish? Polish. Polish. It's actually Kulhavik. Ah. It's, Kulhavik is the real uh, Polish pronunciation, yes. but we anglicized it. So now one knows no one knows what the heck to make of that. Name. It's like, is that Irish? Is it like kill or you know, what is it? Uh, so, so I got up there and of course I forgot everything. I was so nervous and I see the camera and they're putting a mic on me. And of course they're doing that because it's television. And so that really freaked me out. And then I had my hands in my pockets with the index cards. So I couldn't remember anything. And it was like, hello, I'm Joyce Culhaywick, <laughs> it was terrible. And so if I, I couldn't wait to be done with it. I whipped the mic off. I started running away. And the producer jumped out of the truck and came chasing after me and said, hey, hey, come back, Joyce. I think you've got something we're looking for. And I thought, what, amnesia? You know, <laughs> said, come back, stand in front of the camera, and we're just going to ask you questions and talk to you. And they did. And they said, great, we'll be in touch. And I didn't hear from them. And my mother said, call them. <laughs> and I did. And they said, oh, yes, well, the producer wants to have lunch with you. And I said, great. OK, great. We have lunch in Harvard Square. We're talking about everything, books, vacations, what, whatever. At the end of a, an hour and a half, I finally say to Mr. Tom Houghton, so Mr. Houghton, um, how will I know if I have the job? He said, Joyce. You have the job. That's why we're having lunch. I mean, when I tell you I had no clue, I had no connections, I had no nothing except whatever they saw. 
And I walked into Evening Magazine as an on-air contributor and also producing my segments behind the scenes. And it felt like home. Instantly in my niche. It was infinitely easier and less emotionally demanding than teaching high school students English. And it was, I learned a lot of skills behind the scenes, but I already knew how to create a story. I was a writer, you know, so then it was, and I, I was a movie buff and a theater person. So I could sit with an editor and say, not this shot, this shot, you know, and, but I got better and better at that. It was the on air actually being at ease in front of a camera that took me, I think a long time to really, really, really feel good about, you know, really comfortable. What was your and, and, that, and then I got promoted into I did that for three years. I then got promoted into the news department. But again, you know, they wanted me to be their consumer reporter. And I said, well, I could do that, but I don't really care about those <laughs> issues. What I care about are the arts. Right. And I went through this whole thing and they said, no. And um, they said, don't you understand, though? This is a this is a promotion into the news. You're going to be on. The- <laughs> I said, yeah, no. You know, I I had already had a job that wasn't right for me. I wasn't going to do that again. Oh, yeah. I liked doing what I was doing at Evening Magazine. So six months later, they called me and they said, you know what? We're going to do that. We're going to do the arts and you're going to be the whole center. So there was no art entertainment part of the news at that point? No. Crazy I to believe. kind of invented Yeah, right? Wow. There had been movie critics yeah. and there had been stories on, you know, I mean, Pat, Mitchell did that, I think. And I think Pat Collins did it and on WB's on Channel 4. But nobody committed to it. And the station didn't commit to it as a regular part of every newscast. It's new sports weather. When I came on board, they created new sports, weather and arts and entertainment. It was a franchise. And they launched a whole public service campaign around it called You Gotta Have Arts. I, I saw a commercial for that. That I was all over the place. Yeah. And this was so revolutionary, if you will, that the New York Times wrote an editorial on what a brilliant idea it was and what an important public service it was. And in fact, it you know it made infinite sense to me. That is the lens through which I see the world. Oh, well, also, what's more important than the arts? Is there any... Is well, you know, that... you talk to a politician, you talk to a historian, you talk to a math. Everybody thinks their their uh, part of the world is the most important part. But this part, arts, was never part of anything that was truly valued. And we still struggle with that. Yeah. Oh, look, I mean, constantly... look at look at schools cutting funds for the arts. Please. Okay. It drives me insane <laughs> because, in fact, you know, the arts are a creative outlet in a way, you know this, as a teacher of young students who have special needs and gifts. And sometimes it is the only way to communicate. And usually the things that are being communicated are universal things that connect us all as human beings. Uh, so this is this is a creative way to think outside the box to communicate with people past words, past their particular political niche or, you know, socioeconomic niche, music, dance, the arts, the visual arts, theater, movies, all talk to us about who we are as human yeah, beings. They, they, send message, they send messages that transcend all those. Completely all those. and link us together. 
this should be part of every curriculum and every subject because it's a way of approaching life. I mean, if you were just to turn on the news and just hear about rape, robbery, and murder, you'd think we were all horrible. Then you see, then you see painters painting and it touches you. You see dancers dancing, movies that talk about experiences of people you don't know, but create empathy amongst groups of people that may not usually communicate. I would say movies, theater, the arts are more important than ever before. Yeah. So but over the years, what have been some of your, like, whether it's a movie or a play or a musical, whatever, that you were just looking so forward to covering? Oh like, my gosh. I mean, there've been so, so many things. Yeah. I mean, so many things I loved. I mean, there were certain people that I couldn't believe I was talking to. Like you, you interviewed Oprah, right? Oh, I've talked to Oprah. I've yeah. talked to Meryl Streep. I mean, I've it's it's amazing. And to be able to be up close to uh, you know, not that they're like, you know, gods and goddesses or something. They're just people like everybody else, but they're able to channel certain kinds of things. I mean, I remember asking Meryl Streep some of the best questions I've ever asked anybody, and she was respectful enough of me and the process to actually have the conversation. That's not always true. Uh, she, I said, so Miss Streep, once you learn the lines and you learn the, you're in the costume and you've got the blocking, then what happens? And she said, then I forget everything. I let it all go. And I'm just in the moment because yeah. she's done that work. And then she can organically and spontaneously draw from it. I mean, so, so I looked forward to the interviews I had. I looked forward to going to the Oscars. Oh my gosh. Didn't, said, didn't, Matt, didn't Matt Damon and Ben Affleck point you out at the Oscars? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was like the first thing Ben <laughs> Affleck ever said to me was, I walked into a room to interview him. He said, oh my God, <laughs> you're my Siskel, you're my Ebert. <laughs> and then when they won the Oscar, I was, I was there, I was yeah. in the press room. And I said to the woman who was wrangling all the press, I said, you know, I'm from Boston. I know these guys. <laughs> So oh, can I ask the first question in the room? She said, yeah, absolutely. They walk in, she calls on me. I raised my hand and I said, Matt, Ben. And they're like, Joyce, yeah. Joyce. <laughs> my shining moments. This is the <laughs> Oscar as I've ever gotten. And we ran that commercial like for years. <laughs> we got all the mileage we could out of them, but they were just local boys doing local theater in movies, cast from here, Cambridge natives, you know, I mean, it, it was so cool to see them do what they needed to do, but also just to be, just to be on the carpet there. Yeah. And I remember saying- With their moms. With their moms. <laughs> I have a picture right now on my desk of Ben and his mom, you know, on a live shot at the Prudential Center. It was, but I said, hey, let's go to the Oscars. We can cover everything. And they said, you can't go to the Oscars. I said, of course we can. I called up, I applied for credentials. They said, you're in. And we brought a camera crew and we did it. And it became a regular thing for like 25 years. I think I covered the Oscars. Would it that was, be your favorite event to cover? Or It's one of my faves because yeah. you get to see all of these people in a very different setting. They're not in character. Yeah. They're actually a little nervous because they're themselves and they're also competing. They're in a, in, in awards and, and they're also all decked out. They've got to look amazing. So you see them. I mean, there's Brad Pitt. There's, 
Jack Nicholson, there's, you know, Warren Beatty, there's, you know, oh my gosh, here comes Jennifer Lopez and Nicole Kidman. I, I mean, mean, that first time must have been, you didn't had a process, right? And then you get used to it, the more you do it, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a very tough thing to cover too, because you're jammed in on that red carpet and everybody has to be in black tie. Even my cameramen who are usually in t-shirts and jeans had to be in tuxedos. I mean, you know, and... <laughs> It's a, it's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day. So I love covering that. I covered Live Aid. I mean, I covered Live Aid with Tina Turner and Mick Jagger. And I, I kind of kind of just snuck in backstage. I didn't have a pass. And I just held on to a clipboard and walked in like I own the joint. And they just let me right through. That's, I've said that before. Like, if, you, if you're acting like you're supposed to be somewhere, people usually don't question you. Well, get this, Dave. I snuck my mother into the Oscars. Yes. <laughs> I said, Mom, Nam, this is not going to work. This is the year they have tightened security. She said, <laughs> and I said, okay. I said, hold this clipboard. And, you know, she's older and she looked official. My mom is an executive secretary. She looked official. We walked in together. Nobody, nobody said a word. Nobody stopped her. And we, I stashed her with the still photographers from, uh, from abroad, the international still photographer thing. And she she befriended a guy named Fabrizio from Italy. <laughs> and when they came checking the, the IDs, they said, she's with us. <laughs> she's know. a good. And, she's go and I, so there I am doing interviews on the on the red carpet. And I look over and there's my mother. <laughs> I've had That's some awesome. fun. I've had now, some fun. Conversely, I also saw you went to New York to cover 9-11. Yeah. What was I didn't that go like? to it to cover it. Right. Oh, you were there? I got caught in 9-11. Whoa. I was headed to New York on an airplane that morning with Lisa Hughes, and we left 15 minutes after the terrorists oh took my off. God. The terrorists who slept at the Days right. Inn. That's right near right WBZ, next right? Door, yeah. Next door. Literally the building next door across the street. We land at about 8.30. Lisa and I look around, tough to get a cab. She said, let's take a limo. There were limos lined up. We jump into the back seat. We're sitting there. All of a sudden, Lisa looks up and says, hey, it looks like there's a fire in the World Trade Center. Wow. I said, oh, my God. I say, imagine being here. I'm sure they're going to want coverage. So we're on the phone. And while we're on the phone, the second plane oh. hit the World Trade Center. She and I look at each other and we're like, this is no accident. I've right. got chills talking about this. Yeah. This is terrorism. We tell the driver, get us to CBS. We were among the last cars crossing the 59th Street Bridge into Manhattan before they shut it down. We're then in instant gridlock. I said, Lisa, we're going to be stuck here. We still had no idea of what was going on or the scope of this. People back in in uh boston thought we might be dead they weren't right. even sure what well, plane when it happened i remember when it happened i thought of everyone i knew in new york like are they okay exactly <laughs> well they knew we were on a plane that morning oh. and so they didn't know i jump out of the car i said lisa always very practical we're getting hotel rooms because i'm not sleeping on a cot or on the floor at cbs she said good idea we jump off i i Flying to the lobby of the Regency Hotel, I'm on the phone with trying to arrange, trying to arrange uh, a room. When all of a sudden, Azita, who was on the other end, 
sitting in Boston says, oh my God, Joyce, another plane just hit the Pentagon. We were, uh, we did not know if the world was ending. Yeah. I said, oh my God, Azita, she got us rooms. We couldn't drive any longer. It, the roads were blocked, the, the cell phones. I was on a pay phone in the lobby. Our cell phones were jammed. We walked to CBS and we spent the next five days there. We watched and we did live shots from the roof and yeah. then they bust us in. And honestly, I was an arts and entertainment reporter, but when you can tell a story, it doesn't matter. If you're a reporter, you're a reporter, you're right. a reporter. You can report right. and we reported. I will never forget the people coming by signs. Have you seen, have oh. you seen? the phalanx of trucks and ambulances coming in to help. And the saddest thing was there was nothing to help right. except the, you know, there were no survivors, oh, obviously. God. So it was, it was overwhelming. And I ended up walking out of there five days later, walking many, many blocks to get on a train to take me back finally to Boston. But yeah. I've wondered that often of news reporters. When you're reporting about the serious series, like how do you, I don't know how you hold, are you just in the zone where you don't, you're yeah. not even thinking about what you're reporting? Because I watch the, I don't like to watch the news a lot because some of it's so depressing. Um, you just get in a zone and you're just like. Well, you know what your job is. Yeah. And your job is to convey the information because you're there and it needs to get out. And there's a whole audience of people that need to hear it. Yeah. And you want to give the clearest, most unfiltered, objective, but still convey the sense of the whole event. So, so that's your job. And it's an honor to do it. And, and it's like any other job that has parameters. So you can't be undone by what you're seeing. You right. need to be the conduit through which the news will flow. Right. And that's the best way to think about it. Wow. Uh, and being honest, it's funny you talk about being honest and speaking truthfully. Um, I, I also watched some clips of you just absolutely tearing apart movies <laughs> plays like total waste of my time like you know. like what? actually i don't think i ever said that but i, I have conveyed that yeah but have you ever walked out of a movie no okay. uh hang on there might have been one but but you really have to kind of like you owe it to your viewers to really see and to the filmmakers like maybe there's something saves this at the last minute <laughs> I may have walked out of one and I can't remember what it is, but no, I generally, I stay and you can't walk out of a play. There are live people. In yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, right there. So, uh, and over time I've learned to be more respectful uh, and it's easier when there's live bodies in front of you because uh, honestly, and I've taken some acting classes and actually while I was on uh, the air, I signed up deliberately to put myself in that situation. No more, to be more empathetic. I would have a better yeah. sense yeah. of everything. You know, it's not enough to just look at this from the outside. You have to be in the shoes, you know, of and those actors and actresses, that takes extraordinary courage and vulnerability to be on a stage like that. It Did really you ever hear like from someone that you gave a bad review to like, oh, hey, yeah. Joyce, what's, what is your problem? Yeah. Oh, I heard from Joey McIntyre's father. <laughs> no way wait because you said the new kids were bad 
No, I love the new kids. Oh, okay. They asked to be interviewed by me. No, Joey had ended up acting in a play. Oh, uh, on, oh right. Um, okay. Yeah. That's, that's in Gloucester. Out. And I gave him a great review. And oh. I said he was a natural on stage. And he was. And in fact, I ran into him later or somebody and they said, oh, we used to call Joey the Natch after that because you <laughs> used that term with him. But then he was in another play years later and I didn't like the play and he was decent. But and I heard from his father who quoted some Latin phrase to me about, you know, I don't know. <laughs> but when you're a critic, you just got to let that bounce off. Right. I mean, I have to my my word, my take is my currency. Yeah, it has to be true. Right. I have to believe it. It's got to be real. People need to be able to count on that. I mean what I say. Well, and that's so why I I'm... can't you know, I can be respectful, obviously, yeah. about it. But you, that's why you've been so successful. I think you're so honest and so like, I don't know. So oh, I can play this for you now. Um, so <laughs> I don't know if you remember this. And it doesn't mean I'm right. That's the no. other thing. Let me so, just clarify this. I don't know if you remember. I am not part. trying to dictate to yeah. anybody. It's like, this is wholly subjective. I mean, I'm a knowledgeable person. So yeah. it's not like just anybody saying, oh, I loved it. I hated it. Yeah. But for me, it's to stimulate conversation and ideas. Right. And if you had a different take, then great. Let's both talk. Well, I, I often say that to people like I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Yeah. People have often said to me, I don't like it or I've never seen it. I'm like, that's great. Because if we all like the same stuff, life would be boring. Yeah, yeah. Right? That's not what this is about. This right. is to like to this is to analyze and to think about the human experience. This right. is always for me the larger idea. Um, are you a Star Wars fan? Yeah, I love Star Wars. <laughs> you know, I mean, Did there were like a the lot of them. <laughs> you like the new ones? They're okay. Yeah, you know, they're okay. Some of them are better than others. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to flash back to 2005. Okay. You're reporting on episode three in Framingham. Okay. And I'm standing right, I'm literally like right next to you. I'm just like, oh, oh I got to see this. I got to see I'm like, this. oh my God, Joyce Cole Haywick is like right here. <laughs> like what is, like, and I didn't even know the news was going to be there. I was just there because I wanted to see the movie, right? Yeah. And so you're, I think you were talking with your producer about how you're going to lead into the segment. And I was like, <laughs> I go, I'm sure you don't remember this, but I go, Joyce, just say, I'm here in Framingham, surrounded by a bunch of Star Wars dorks. And that's what you were, because you were. Um, Did I say that? No, you don't say. It. I wish you had said that. <laughs> um, so let me see. I'm going to share this. I can't wait to see this. Can you see that? Oh, there! I see this. Is it small? Or is it very? It's large and it's quite blurry. Oh, okay. All right. It'll come in. Is that you? That's me with the red one. Yep. Showing of the final episode of George Lucas's Star Wars saga, Revenge of the Sith, and it is in this installment. You still look the same, by the way. You haven't aged a day. I look. I look fifty years older. There are techniques. <laughs> you know, I color my hair. I had a little work done. You know, I take, I stay out of the sun. So, you know, there's, there are ways to do this. And I kept my weight down. That's huge. This was definitely my favorite of the prequels. I mean, that's easy to say. Oh. 
Anakin Skywalker become Darth Vader? The transformation. You grew up like watching the movies, and then you know now you're a young adult and just kind of want to see the end of it all. Even though the first two prequels have been disappointing, this one looks to be looks like it'll measure up. Well, is apparently the only person on the planet that actually liked the first two. Um, yeah, the first two prequels. The first two prequels. You are the only person on the planet. <laughs> I've pretty much come to realize that. We'll be reporting live again tonight at the 11 o'clock news to tell you more about what's going on in the fan world in terms of Star Wars. But in the meantime, reporting live from the AMC theaters in Framingham. Yeah, boss, be with you. Back to you, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, now let I'm me tell you. Wearing, I'm wearing this <laughs> in honor of what you had us say. You know what? I don't, I don't know if you remember this, but some of my teaching came in handy. Because what I would do with these crowds that would gather around me, and you, you had a very lively, well-behaved crowd. <laughs> but, I mean, other events that I actually did love to cover, like opening of symphony, opening mm. of pops, live shots, oh, uh, first night, you know? So first night, people are like drunk and partying. And yeah. so I've got to figure out how to stand in front of a group like this and organize them. So I would turn around and I would say, getting everybody ready, I said, okay, look. I was the teacher. Look, we're all going to be on the air live. And I would put the fear of God into them. I said, so we're coming up. Wait a minute. And I sometimes I would just pretend I'd say, wait a minute, wait a minute, two minutes. I'm getting a signal. And they'd be like, oh, oh, oh. And then if somebody started to act up, some big guy in the crowd would usually say, hey, hey, quiet. You know, like I'd, I'd have spontaneous bodyguards. And then and then I would say, and at the end, when I give this line, do, you know, yell or, you know, whatever. And that's what we did in that shot. And it worked like a charm. And they would be in the control booth watching me do this, laughing hysterically. I organized a crowd. I got them all. It was like we put on a show. It was like <laughs> we put on a play. You know, it was great. great. It was, I loved being on a live shot with people in yeah. that moment. So you're I You're in your it. element. You could tell you're in your element. Yeah, I loved it. I mean, because <laughs> you get energy from people. Yeah. It's yeah. very different from sitting in a studio talking to a camera. Yeah. It's very up, to uh, imagine that. Stand-up comedy is the same. You There's a give and take, and you need those people to do it. <laughs> so, Dave, honestly, stand-up comedy, to me, the most terrifying thing a person could do. <laughs> do you find it so? Um, well, so I, this will kind of segue into another conversation I want to have with you about cancer. So I had... Um, comedy, cancer, I get it. I had I had given cancer awareness talks for a few years yeah. and put jokes within that. Within You're a survivor. Yep. yep. And so I knew I had jokes that worked and I was comfortable being in front of people. So with those two together, it wasn't that hard of a transition for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's that as you know, Mike Birbiglia, right? Oh, yeah. He's one of my fa he's my favorite current. Uh, performing comedian wonderful. and he said you know with stand-up if they're you know there's no no one else to blame no director no writing when if you're rejected by the audience they're basically saying oh you don't like me like <laughs> yeah I mean it's like you stink and you're there you have to I mean it's terrifying I don't think I could face the rejection it, it's just you could do it you could yeah. have you never tried it no oh god no <laughs> But no. you you performed music in front of a lot of people. Yeah, I know. But you've got the music and, right. you know, it's tried to hide behind kind of. You know, there's like Beethoven, you know, I mean, there's like, you know, 
whatever. It's <laughs> no jokes. That's from you. That's from you. Honestly, I just thing is being a critic in a way. I mean, no, it is. That isn't even close. It isn't even close. And I couldn't even be an act. I couldn't be an actress either. I could not. So I can only be myself. You're saying that um, stand up terrifies you, but yet you're a three time cancer survivor. Can you share that story with us and how stand up comedy is way scarier than that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you know, cancer, cancer. Uh, I'm a very unlikely candidate to have ever had cancer. I am a three time survivor. There is very little cancer in my family. There is like, I didn't fit any of the profiles. I was misdiagnosed every single time. Oh, God. I had two really very serious, uh, and one of them was incurable, but but I got it early. So I had malignant melanoma 10 days before my wedding, okay? Whew. Misdiagnosed. I thought I was going to have to, and finally they diagnosed it and said to cancel the wedding and I had to go into the hospital and I didn't have, I had just started WBZ. So I had left my teaching job. I didn't have any insurance wow. and I was freelancing. So I said, do I need insurance? They said, oh, it's going to be expensive. I mean, it was terrible. Cancel the wedding, cancel the wedding. And it was a double wedding. I was getting married at the same ceremony with my brother and his bride. Oh, wow. Oh, please. It That's... was just, it was so dramatic. The whole thing. How old are you? And what? I was like 26 late, late when I 70s? got married. To, to, yeah. 79, wow. 79. And uh, but I got a second opinion by a man who saved my life, who turned out to be a specialist of malignant melanoma. And he said, you know what? I'm going to give you the good news and the bad news. The bad news is this is a very vicious and aggressive tumor. Uh, it spreads rapidly to the brain, the kid, you know, whatever he said. But for whatever reason, I think we may have caught this in time, but we have to consider saving your life first. And that's got to come off right now wow. can you handle a local anesthetic and i said yeah absolutely wheel me in. and they put up a sheet took it off i walked down the aisle with 17 stitches in my leg and i was down to like skin and bones and i was pretty thin to begin with but i was just you know not eating that much i was on percocet you know it was like it was wild it was it was wild it was but, a discoloration or what was the how did you know no, this is this is also an interesting story it was a mole a big okay. black mole just above my right knee wow and i had been there for a year and i didn't think anything of it 1979 we weren't looking at moles and melanoma or anything I, in fact, we all thought it was kind of sexy. It was like, oh, isn't that cute? One day I'm watching TV. TV saved my life. I'm watching the Phil Donahue show. And Phil Donahue had a woman on who said she had cancer of the colon. And it all started with a mole on her leg. Whoa. And I looked down and I'm like, huh, that's interesting. I said, well, you know what? Before my wedding, let me just get everything taken care of. I went to a dermatologist who looked at it and said, didn't look like anything. And I said, well, I want a biopsy because there's one thing I am, Mike, and that is a little bit pushy. <laughs> <laughs> I do speak up for myself. I know what I want. And I said, no, I need to know exactly what this is, which is what I tell everybody. Don't wait until right. it turns into something bad. Okay. You know, I said, I need to know. He said, well, we'll get you the results in 10 days. I said, nope, I'm getting married. I got to have the results right away. And he said, well, you'd have to carry the sample over to the lab yourself. And I said, okay, he puts, he takes off half the mole, puts it in a jar, floating in a solution. My husband and I walk through the Chestnut Hill Mall, <laughs> Chestnut Hill Medical Center and deliver it. And three days later, they called me semi-hysterical. Uh. 
you have malignant melanoma. We have to check you into a hospital. And I didn't know what they were talking oh, about. Right. Honestly, this mole didn't hurt. It didn't bleed. It didn't. Yeah, you it, didn't feel. You didn't feel sick. It wasn't. No. Oh. I am, and I am, like the healthiest person you'll ever meet, with the exception of like three. Oh. Of <laughs> but I don't get the usual. You know anything? I oh. I don't get a cold. I don't right. nothing. So that was that. And then and then um, when we got the final biopsy done, they said, no, the part we removed was even shallower than the first part we took off. We think your chances of covering 95% complete. But the 5% that was in God's hands when you got this, but we're going to be with you the rest of your life checking. So I go for constant scans, you know, uh, constant. Once a year, I get a total yeah. scan uh, because while I'm not, um, I'm not paranoid by any stretch, but I am careful and I am vigilant about myself. Yeah, and you, we we know our bodies more than better than any doctor. I mean, that's a huge part of it too. Exactly, it's knowing you're normal and monitoring what's going on. Every Dave, day. you've said a mouthful, and it is what I remind people of all the time. And I've been talking about cancer for forty years. We live in our bodies, and we know them better than anybody else. And we need to just be able to find a doctor the right doctor who will hear you and be open enough to see it and appreciate it. I've said this to audiences too. Not every doctor graduates at the top of their class. Exactly. <laughs> what do you call the doctor who doesn't? <laughs> doctor. Yeah. But you know when you meet them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, you know who you have a communication yeah. with. Yeah. And don't go in alone. Bring people with you if you're nervous or you can't think of everything. Yeah, I used to go in with my mother, my brother, my husband. We'd go in as a team. Yeah. Ten years later, and I'm thinking, oh, cancer's behind me. Ten years later, I'm doing a yoga workout in my room, and uh, I suddenly feel cold. And I don't do yoga in a regular way. That was like maybe one of five yoga workouts I've ever done. So I feel cold. I check the thermostat. Oh, the thermostat's up. I'm cold. And within minutes, I get abdominal pain. And I'm, I start running a temperature and I have chills. And I like dragged myself into the car and drove to the Leahy Clinic, the closest ER to me. They said I was green when I walked in the door. They said I looked like I was going to. They got me in. They decided I had a pelvic infection. They treated me with intravenous antibiotics and let me go home with a clean bill of health. But I knew something. There was a little, little, little voice, off. right? <laughs> I just didn't quite feel right. Yeah. And a friend of mine was visiting, and I said, "Look at my st I'm slightly, slightly swollen." And I thought, "Well, you're 35. You know, you start to put on a little bit, so you forget what's normal for you." Right. I said, "Look at me. Is this normal for me?" And she looked at me. She said, "No, that's not normal for you." And I called another doctor who checked me into the Beth Israel Hospital. And they said, oh, it's your appendix. It's got to come right out. It was only when they finally opened me up that they saw a, a tumor. Oof. And it was ovarian cancer. Wow. It was unbelievable. And that's a very difficult cancer. But for some reason, my body sent up symptoms, definitive ones that we could not ignore right away at this earliest possible stage. 1A. And you know, there's... One ABC, two ABC, right up through stage four. And that's a cancer that's usually not found until it's at a later stage because it doesn't send up symptoms. Right. Until. So I thought, oh my gosh. So they said, we, we removed that. You don't need chemo. We caught it early. Have your family. I didn't have any kids at that point. 
and then come back and do a hysterectomy. And I thought, well, that's kind of sort of conflicting information, but I believed them. Right. Like they're worried enough to have me come back, but they're not worried enough that they want to do anything now. That decision almost cost me my life. Whoa. I was on an airplane a year and a half later, headed to on a safari to Africa. Talk about inconvenient. As we're coming in for a landing in Nairobi, I'm racked with abdominal pain. And I'm like, is this food poisoning, the flu, cancer? Do I turn all around and fly, you know, 20 hours back to Boston? Do I check myself into a hospital in Nairobi? I mean, no good options here. Right. I hold up in a hotel in Africa. We waited. I felt better and well enough to stay. And we did the whole safari. I hiked into the Virunga Mountains and met the mountain gorillas. I mean, it was amazing. Came back home, talked to them. They said, oh, you have pancreatitis. Misdiagnosed it again. I said, even with my history, oh, this disease is behind you. But they did a blood test, which several weeks later came in and it was through the roof, a CA-125. And they said, uh-oh, oh no, we think this is serious. They scheduled me for surgery and I didn't make the surgery. The night before my surgery, I was racked with pain. They had to rush me in and do an emergency operation. Ooh. And at that, that point, the tumor was everywhere. It had ruptured now three times, oh once my. in Africa, once when I got home and once that night. Are you there? Oh, no. <laughs> We've lost choice. Oh, so grateful. I mean, you immediately. I just, I just lost, I just lost audio with you first. Oh, I saw yeah. you froze a little bit, or I yeah, froze. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. I don't um, know where I left, but. So you, if you were back home and it ruptured three times, and right. they, emergency surgery and they... emergency surgery, and then pieces were everywhere. They said I needed full chemotherapy and uh, they were, I did a total hysterectomy, but they didn't know what the, you know, what the long-term prognosis was going to be. And I remember just thinking I would be so grateful if I could just take a walk in the woods that fall. That was right. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how you get back to baseline. What's really important. What's really important. <laughs> really important. I mean, that's, and you talked about that before is that, you know, I, I, my, I, I, I've only had cancer once, but I was what diagnosed. What kind of cancer, Dave? Uh, mine was brain cancer. Oh my so, God! So, so I was, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease when I was fourteen, and I let those symptoms go for years. Like I knew something was wrong with me. I didn't want to tell anyone. I didn't. And finally, they thought out my appendix was about to burst. They opened me up, and my intestines were like rotting away. Oh. But I, I learned from that. I learned from that when I had my brain cancer it was uh headaches and double vision were my symptoms but i learned from my Crohn's. i was like you can't wait this time you got to go to the doctor even you know it's the fear of finding out bad news right we all people have to get over that i don't have that yeah you have to get over you're gonna go over it i always tell people you're being afraid of it and not looking at it isn't going to change it right, exactly. you're, but you're if you go yeah. you could change it or the the earlier you catch it the better absolutely with every men men don't want to well men don't even want to go to the doctor and when women go to the doctor they hesitate to contradict a doctor or chat well that was you know that's kind of the funny thing with my Crohn's is that 
it got me used to going to doctor, getting tests done, getting blood drawn, getting MRIs, all that stuff. And they couldn't diagnose it? They, what they, that? they couldn't so, diagnose it, but they finally uh, did. No, I'm saying um, just they diagnosed it when I had surgery, but just having phones, you go through all those things and That's just right. having that experience of all the medical test appointments got me ready for cancer in a way. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Hate to be ready for cancer, but I, <laughs> I was. No, the, you gotta be ready for anything, right? Well, I was the first person I knew who I had cancer. I don't know if you were you the first person that you knew who had cancer. I didn't know anyone. No. My my aunt had lung cancer, but she was a heavy smoker, and she had died like decades before. So I didn't. I associated it with that, which isn't necessarily true, by the way. Lots of people get lung cancer who were not smokers. There should be no stigma attached to that. <laughs> I do a lot of work on behalf of lung cancer people. I was going to say, and so what, um, as a three times. I was one of the few people that I knew. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. And And it was me. (laughs) And can you talk about that transition from being a survivor to being advocate speaker? Like, Oh, it never occurred to me to hide this. Yeah. Don't forget. I was sick when I was on the air and I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to lose my hair, which I didn't. The doctors were even wrong about that. It was so bizarre. I mean, it ended up looking kind of funny, but uh, I didn't lose it. And I I didn't want to put any energy into hiding this disease. And it it also didn't occur to me that I should hide it. I was never embarrassed by it. I never considered it my fault. I didn't think of it as a sign of weakness. I thought of it as something that could happen to anybody, that it was totally out of my control, and that it could be useful for people to to know, and I could help. That was always my thought. And I spent no time wondering about, oh, why me or something. It seemed to me I had been so lucky in my life and so blessed that why not me? Somebody has to get that. I mean, everyone deals with something, right? The disease comes in many sizes and forms, and- some and, people and like I had a, a I had a, something else, you know, yeah, I, you know, I had a wonderful, loving, supporting family life with my parents and my siblings, yeah. but we dealt with a lot of disease, but it, but it showed us that that showed us what's important and that's each other, right? That's really Absolutely. the only thing that matters. All that we are here for is to be with one another and help support and love. Yeah. That's it. Um, and then when you put that out, doesn't it come back to you? Yeah. And I tell people sometimes if they don't want to talk about it or whatever, I said, let let people help you when you need it. It's a gift to them. It's a gift to other people that they can help you. And then when they need it, you can help them. And then when you've been helped, you can pass it on. So it creates this beautiful momentum in the world. And that's actually a nice transition. So I taught for 10 years. And then for 10 years, I worked worked at Hope Lodge in Worcester, uh, which was my way of taking my experience and just giving back. And you, I believe is our 25th anniversary, you came and spoke. I don't know if you remember Hope Lodge. Oh, yeah. And I, I worked with uh, Audrey, who was yes. at that. Yeah. She, <laughs> and I'd done some fashion shows there. Yeah. And oh, yeah. yeah. Many speeches in Worcester. That was a lovely lodge which is now closed, unfortunately. Oh, right? Well, I was living and working there when they closed it. So yeah, I remember. Oh, wow. I'll have to, I, actually, I have to share, I wrote a public letter to the American Cancer Society about that. I'll have to share with you and I'd love to get your thoughts offline. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> happy, to, happy to weigh in on that. And we've got a Hope Lodge in Boston, which yes. 
actually began to take shape in my living room. We had a meeting, there were drawings and we That's were like, amazing. oh my gosh, yeah. And Thank then I God for those places. I mean, I have a the ribbon with Mayor yeah. Menino. I mean, it was, <laughs> yeah. it's a beautiful place. For yeah. And thank God we have places like that, you know, thank, I, thank, that's the other thing. Thank God we were both lucky enough to be in Massachusetts, right? Where we have some of the best hospitals and doctors on the yeah. planet. Yeah. <laughs> and they can still be wrong. <laughs> right, they exactly. can still be wrong. So we have to own ourselves, don't we? We yeah. have to fight for ourselves because if a doctor makes a mistake, who pays the price? <laughs> the patient, you yeah, know, patient. exactly. Not to cast blame, but you have one body, one life. So do you, since your experience, do you follow like certain diet, exercise routine? Like, no, no, just whatever. You know, you know what I do, honestly, and I think it's just common sense and balance. I have a big appetite. I eat a lot of things, honestly. I, I, I everything, you know, red meat, uh, blue meat, you know, I, <laughs> it's like, um, I actually did give up initially. I started doing yoga and I gave up red meat. <laughs> I was at an I was at an ashram too. I you know, I tried a lot of different things and I did I took Chinese herbs and chemotherapy. I threw everything, everything at it. Because I thought I don't know what's going to work. Yeah. And maybe some of it'll work, maybe none of it'll work. I'm I just know I wouldn't be able to <laughs> quote unquote, live with myself, <laughs> if I had to think, oh, if I had only, you know, so I could live with, I've done my best. And now it's out of my hands. And yeah. if this is it, I surrender. You know, there's that there's just so much you got to know when you have no more control. But in the meantime, I, I had I threw everything at it. I this used, so um, yeah, I used visualization when I was in treatment. So um, my, uh, neighbor of mine who was a doctor lived right across the street and with my Crohn's I went to the doctor my regular doctor I didn't tell him anything I was like it hurts right here and my neighbor examined me he's like you got to go to the ER tonight so he saved my life then and then when I start was starting chemo for my brain cancer he told me about visual visualization how to do it what it was that he had read studies on patients who used it at a higher success rate and when I was diagnosed they said, you're going to need chemo followed by radiation. And after my sixth round of chemo, my oncologists were like, um, we don't know why, but you don't need radiation. <laughs> and I knew why, because I had pictured it being gone. Like, yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, that's the thing with visualization. It's not the only reason it was gone. It was in conjunction with positive thoughts, treatment, being surrounded by supportive people, you know. I think all those things play a factor. I completely agree with you. And they do, there are so many things we are unaware of that are unseen that we can harness to help us. Are you talking about dark matter? What are you talking about? I'm talking about, about, yeah, dark matter. I'm talking about a whole sphere of energy, et cetera, that, that we can actually access. Yeah. I mean, you know, the body is this, to me, external manifestation of uh, the spirit and all yeah. kinds of things. And, you know, I don't belong to any organized religion or anything like that, but I am, I am aware that we are part of something larger than what we see. It's called and the force. It's something, you know, it's made the force <laughs> be with us. And your visualization, meditation, I believe yeah. in it. I believe oh, yeah. strongly I would be well. I believed that yeah. and I had a lot of love around me. Yeah. And yeah, so I think all of these things are 
absolutely true and we need to yeah be part of it you know just be part so of we're coming up on the end of the hour i just want to know what what i know it's quick huh um what's what's on your horizon what are you just seeing art i think i'm having some kind of renaissance right now david yeah. it's interesting yeah i just appeared on wbz tv for the first time in 15 years live in their studio to talk about the oscar nominations ah. they reached out I now have a regular gig on GBH Radio 89.7 okay. on Jared Bowen's The Culture Show. Awesome. So we talk about theater, et cetera, et cetera. So I do that. I'm writing my uh, my website, which is yep. joyceschoices.com. So I still review movies in theater. I'm the president of the Boston Theater Critics Association, so I have to see everything. Um, I speak about cancer. I host women's leadership conferences. I mean, honestly, people have Very said, so you're retired. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I mean, no shade on anyone who does retire, but I'm not there. I mean, no. I, well, I love what I do. I would not retire from it. So I think it has to do with one's relationship to one's work. Yeah. And if your work is a passion to some extent, you're not you working. Retire. I want to work less. Trust me. I do not miss those nightly deadlines, which were hair raising. I thought I was <laughs> going to die from that. No, I don't want to do that anymore, but I want to be able to dip in and out and control my schedule. Yeah. That's what I love. That's awesome. Any thoughts on AI and its impact on writing and entertainment? And you know, uh, I may be on the flip side of this, but I, AI does not scare me, <laughs> but I am an optimist. Yes. I see the potential for AI to really help us if we remember it's a tool. Right. And just like people were afraid of TV, they were afraid of cars, they were afraid of, you know, all kinds of things. And I'm not, you know, downplaying how serious it is, you know, when you get deep fakes, like, you know, Biden's voice on a robo call. And that's scary. Did, well, did you see, did you hear about George Carlin's stand-up? There's a new no. George Carlin stand-up special that was all AI. It sounds like him. It, yeah. No. Google that. So that's a little scary. We have to figure out how to outsmart the tool we have. You know, <laughs> we have to control it, wrangle it in. No, my brain goes to how it can assist us in diagnosing cancer, for example. Yes. Instead of there being, you know, false positives and negatives when you read a scan, because human beings who've been reading, you know, 30 scans that day maybe Are got one wrong. Mistakes, AI right? is not going to make that mistake. And they're going to do it in a nanosecond. Right. They're going to find it out right away. So I'm thinking of all the upside. Okay, right. uh, yeah. And maybe AI can help us figure out how to control AI. That's <laughs> my other thing. You know, like a chatbot, you can ask a chatbot, hey, did a chatbot write this? And it will tell you. So um, I think there are ways to do it. Yeah. It doesn't frighten me. If I'm um, going to go watch a movie in a theater, coming up or streaming what would you recommend okay so i think this year's crop of movies that have been nominated for best uh picture are phenomenal it's an exceptional year i if you haven't seen oppenheimer it is a I masterpiece yeah. okay yeah. see american fiction okay see the zone of interest a german film about the commandant of the auschwitz concentration camp who lives with his family in a paradise literally on the other side of the wall from oh. Auschwitz. 
Man's Search for Meaning is one of my favorite books. Oh my gosh, the willful blindness, the casual cruelty. And you never see what's on the other side, but it's there. I mean, okay, I would see that. I would see, um, oh my gosh, Poor Things, which is like a feminist Frankenstein. Okay. Really These are all on your website. I think I've saw Yeah, you look at okay, all great. that. Yeah. I mean, it looks at what, um, how a human being might develop unencumbered by social and moral strictures. <laughs> how freeing would yeah, that be? Yeah, you know? yeah. um, and what would really, who are we really? So it's all looking at the human condition, at meaning, at, uh, at uh, yeah, how we put people in boxes that and they shouldn't be there, how we misread, misunderstand. Yeah, and some of this is funny. Some of it is, you know, deep and, and depressing, but, but all of it is food for uh, considering how we move forward in the world and expanding our now healthy brains, Dave. <laughs> are, are they still healthy with all the social media? Are they? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not wedded to social media. Oh, I use good it. For you. It serves me. <laughs> I have no trouble turning off my computer for two or three days at a time on a weekend. Good I don't you. look at my email. I don't. And then when I go back, it's there when I want it. Yes. And I will answer in my you, own good time. Do you, so uh, do, do you have like, this is my email time. I, I check email. at. No, I'm actually kind of bad on that. I'll sit in front of this computer all day. I mean, I'm sort of contradicting myself. <laughs> but the, but um, and then it just comes in, you know, but I don't have it on my phone. I won't oh. have email on my phone. Okay. And I don't walk around with my phone. I don't want an appliance attached to me. <laughs> and if it's ringing and I don't hear it, good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I'm incommunicado, <laughs> but I, I will sit in front of my computer because I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of uh, just figuring out my schedule and yeah. I do a lot of, um, uh, I have to, I'm in touch with a lot of people. Do, do you have any assistant or is it just you? It's me. That's amazing. You're, you are, you're a superwoman. I don't. Intergalactic enterprises, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, Joyce, I, I I know you probably have other stuff to do, so I don't want to keep. I'm going to the theater at three o'clock. Oh, as a matter awesome. of fact, awesome. The lyric, "Trouble in Mind." Haven't oh, seen. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I look forward to your review of that. Um, thank you so much for your time and being a guest on the podcast. It's been I, yeah, better that I you know I thought it was going to be amazing. It was it was it was awesome. You're great. Dave, you are <laughs> awesome. You are a very easy person to talk to, and I applaud your work with okay. children. And I applaud your health and I'm sending yes. you all positive, loving, healthful vibes to be well. Thanks Reach so much. Reach out Dave. anytime to me. Anytime. We will. I hope we'll be in touch and I hope you'll be on again. Thank you. Have Thank a you. great night. Take care. Bye. Bye.